Good morning. Can you hear me? Hey, yeah, there we go. Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you all for being here this morning. I am uh, going to call your attention to the passage that we'll be approaching together this morning. And it is 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. So as to not be too difficult, try again. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. And I'm going to read aloud while you follow along. <clears throat> this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let me get a stopwatch going so you guys don't hate me after this. 1 John 1, 5 through chapter 2, 2 is a beautiful passage of scripture. It is rich, it is deep, it is pastoral, it is convicting, it is hope-giving, it is encouraging, it is many, many things. And so I thought, why not get to approach it together today? So this is in the epistle of 1 John. And John here is writing to us for multiple reasons. He gives us a few of the reasons for the book as a whole. His main purpose for the letter seems to be writing so that genuine believers might know that they are found in Christ, safe and eternally secure. And that as little children, they might be comforted in the salvation that has come to them through Christ Jesus. Now, with this encouraging hope, we also see a secondary reason for his authorship. We see that he also writes that for those who sit among the body deceiving themselves, Believing they are in Christ due to some other form of meritorious work or measure that they themselves have achieved. That those who are not in Christ might be very uncomfortable. That the truth of what is to be found in Christ might expose their falsehood. So that they might see their desperate need for God's grace. And turn to the genuine salvation that's offered in Christ. John writes very pastorally, very sweetly, 
And he shows us in this chapter, or in this book, how to have sweet comfort in salvation that Christ has granted. And yet, he also shows, as it has been said many times, that we are saved by faith alone, and yet the faith that saves is never alone. He writes very pastorally, very practically. And yet, we have an immediate context here when we approach this passage specifically. John actually tells us the reason for which he writes this section of scripture in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. So before we dive into walking through the passage, let's go to where John says the reason for which he writes, that we might be guided well to avoid different hang-ups. He writes to the church that they may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So as to make sure that we don't misinterpret that, he writes to the church that no one would be able to take license due to the beauty of God's grace in their life and believe that therefore, now that we are saved, we may go and sin all the more. But rather, he writes to point to the beauty of who it is we run to when we have discovered sin. He writes that we would know where to go when we, perfectly righteous before God, still fall to sin. And John seeks to do so through this passage by introducing us to three individuals, possibly four, but I'll argue for three. And so let's go ahead and dive into this passage and start working through it together. This is the message we have heard from him, meaning God, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You see, John starts by ensuring that we are first and foremost going to know who God is. And not only that we're going to know who God is, but know who he is not. For there is no sin in him, and therefore no contentment with sin will reside in him as well. You see, it's the character of God that John starts with that he then uses as the crux for describing who we are to follow, what is true about man. And so, verse 6, we are introduced to the first of the three people that John will walk us through today. He says... If we say we have fellowship with him while, walk, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So I'm going to call this person the lover of darkness. This is one who claims to have fellowship with God. This is the person who believes they are good with God, or at least would claim to be so. And yet, their life exposes something quite distinctly different. They say they have fellowship, and yet what they do reveals that they are possibly mistaken. 
They say that they have fellowship and yet they walk in darkness, which was actually just described in verse 5 as the antithesis of who God is. This is someone who does not speak truthfully about his or her actions. And they reveal something quite in opposition to their words. So what does the lover of the dark do, according to John? The lover of the dark lies. We see an image of this in Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. As God's people have so walked from him that he actually begins to call out from the prophet of Isaiah, hey, guys, please stop worshiping. Please stop. For it is an offensive and loud noise. Your hearts walk far from me as you pretend to worship. Stop worshiping me. This is an example of that who John addresses here. It's those who claim or pretend to be righteous and religious, but it's for their own vain purposes. A good example of this might be the teenager who comes to church every week, even enjoying the fact that they are seen as a a good kid. It allows them to avoid the punishment that would inevitably occur if they were found out, and yet they live quite happily, contentedly, joyfully in unrepentant sin. This is the couple who at home are a raging war with one another, hating one another and being hated, and yet they come not to bow down before the Lord or seek help from their brothers and sisters, but pretend all is well. For we would not want others to know the truth, that I am indeed a sinner. This is possibly the man who is a brute at home, When he arrives back from work, his family flees to their rooms for fear of his inevitable wrath that is going to be descending upon anyone in his way. Yet, he sits here together in the gathering, boldly pretending that he is a good man because he yelled loud enough to scare his kids to come into church. He comes for his own vain purposes not to bow himself before the perfect, beautiful Father God. So what is John's response to this person? You say you have fellowship with God. You lie. Rather, walk in the light. Live honestly. See truthfully who you are before God. Because when you speak the truth of who you are, guess what? You will actually have the fellowship you claim you already have. For in God there is no Darkness. And so he encourages for me to no longer cling to the sin that I long to hide in the dark. But instead to allow God the Father to cleanse it through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let it be known that sin will only ever grow and fester in the dark. As we practice hiding our sin, we practice holding it more closely and intimately to our heart. And as we practice, we so practice denying and disobeying our loving Father who calls us to live in the light. Our first introduction to 
to our first person is the lover of the dark. But that's not where he stops. For John continues. In verse 8 he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so here we're introduced to the second person of our passage. In the first person, we see that the lover of darkness, he lies. Well, here we see in what I will call the innocent, righteous victim. They do not merely lie, but they deny. This is the person who John intends to make feel very uncomfortable. And yet, unfortunately, this is the person who would maybe feel less uncomfortable than anyone else. For when we read of this description, often the person struggling most with it will not think of themselves. They will think of only others. So let's hear of this person, this second person who John intends to introduce us to. He says, they say... They have no sin. Where the lover of the dark said they have fellowship, here this person takes it a step farther to deny sin altogether. And so what do they in fact do? They do not hide their sin in the dark, for they do not even claim it. Rather, what they do is self-deception. This person I'll call the innocent, righteous victim. Why? Because often, when I am being an innocent, righteous victim, I am going to be most tempted to claim that there is no sin in me. And so, this person denies where the lover of darkness lies. We say we have no sin, and what is worse, this person believes it. They see no wrong in themselves. They're pretty good. They're doing well enough. Everyone else tends to be the problem. If there's a wrongness in your life, if there's brokenness that you see, it's okay. Take heart. There's someone else to blame. They may intellectually assent to the reality that they have sin, which we may see hints of in verse 8. Though it is in a very general sense that they admit it. They may give lip service to sin in general, and yet this is the person who would claim that they indeed have no fault. In most matters. What this means is that they are blind. To the prevalence of their sin. And its effect. Of those. They share life with. We see a biblical example of this. We see several biblical examples of this. But for one is Luke 18. 9 through 14. As I'll read it aloud. He also meaning Jesus told this parable to some. Who trusted in themselves. That they were righteous. And therefore treated others with contempt. He said two men went up into the temple to pray. And one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God I thank you. That I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And yet, we hear in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's the key with this person. It's not as though they believe they're living in the dark, for that would assume that they were actually aware of their sin. This actually instead is to point out those of us who actually believe ourselves innocent, righteous, without sin. And we see a slight result, do we not, for those who trusted in themselves that their, and their righteousness, therefore they treated others with contempt. We see this played out in 2 Samuel chapter 11. As David has surveyed his kingdom, he has done the vile deeds that he did, and he sits on it quietly for a long period of time. We may be tempted to believe he is a lover of the dark. I fear that his situation was far more dire. For in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes before him. And he lays out a situation of a man who stole that which was not his. He mistreated and abused it. He was even guilty of a murderous act, though merely of an animal. And what was David's response? David, in fury responded that that man ought to receive nothing less than the treatment he gave to the poor animal he slaughtered. And here David exposed he was blind, for he found no sin in himself. For in even hearing the story, it was not him that received judgment. This is someone who sees no prevalence of sin in their life, nor its effects on others. This is the irrebukable person. This is the person who holds themselves very highly in esteem. And they will think of themselves even as a good Christian. And yet, this is the person who will disdain those they hold lowly. They will scoff at the sin of the Democrat. They will mock, slander, and abuse the homosexual. They will be quick to aggress someone they believe unrighteous. They will be quick to perceive sin against them even if there was none intended. They will take much as a personal attack against them. They, like the Pharisee, will trust in their goodness, and so they treat others with contempt, believing themselves to be righteous. They will even believe they stand on God's side of condemning the actions of others. And yet, John does not merely describe the heart of this individual, but he tells us how we got here. You see, why is it that the innocent, righteous victim would do this. For surely this is not a description of any, anyone that we would want to be or strive after. How did we arrive at this place? How can they hold themselves highly? Because they are deceived. 
We mustn't read far at all in the word of God to realize that we are quick to be deceived and our natural propensity to even being self-deceived. And how are we deceived so? For the truth is not in us. We do not see biblically. We see ourselves therefore naturally as right. Our pride allows us to believe that it ought to be offensive for someone to think that I could possibly be a sinner. So, we become a victim. It is often those of us who wish to protect our victimhood where we will make sure we are able to find someone else to put the blame on. If I see brokenness in my life and I believe myself to be a victim, I am expunged from guilt. We see this in Genesis 3, do we not? If I am righteous and yet there is sin and suffering in the world, you can bet that I will be able to find someone to blame it upon as Adam does when God approaches him kindly in the cool of the day, offering him an opportunity for repentance, and Adam says, that woman you gave me. We will blame others for what is happening. We will blame our parents for our upbringing. We may venture to say it's what I was raised with. It was what my father did, so I know no other way. We will deny the fact that our sin is not produced in our upbringing, but in our hearts. We will blame it on our personality. We'll say, I'm just an honest person. I can't help what I say. I'm a rougher person. Don't be so sensitive. We will blame a diagnosis, a disease, an addiction. We'll blame a boss. We will blame my kids. We will blame traffic. We will blame the Democrats, the Republicans, the presidential candidates. We will blame the heat or our lack of sleep. We will blame and blame and blame. We will watch the world around us be affected by our sin and watch them hurt and not count the common denominator. Me. We are easy to offend like a pin grazed against the edge of a balloon with the slightest wrong move. Someone will receive an enemy. We will be judgmental and critical. Seeing ourselves highly, we will treat others with contempt. We will see no sin, though even if we could, we would point to anything and everything else to ensure that the other person's the problem and not me. This is the most dangerous aspect of this second person that John introduces us to. Because when we hear of this, we will not naturally think of ourselves. We will think of others at fault for being guilty of being in this category. Just as in Matthew 19, 16 through 22, we watch the rich young ruler approach Jesus understanding that there is something missing. And yet, upon hearing the prescription of Jesus and the help therein, the freedom found in following after him fully, in understanding our need and desperate for the help that Christ offers, we instead walk away 
because we think we're righteous. Therefore, we in fact do the very thing verse 10 says we do. If we say we have not sinned, John says, we make him a liar. If this is me, by denying God's perspective of my sin, I look him in the face and say, liar. Because God's perspective of me is indeed a sinner. In so much need of constant advocacy and knowing of my utter depravity that he had to actually make it just for him to forgive me by slaughtering the only righteous man. If this is me, I now see my problem. So here John has introduced to us to two people. The lover of the dark and the innocent righteous victim. And I thank the Lord that he does not leave it there. He calls us through introducing a third person to what our response ought to be. He calls us not to lie, not to deny, but to cry, to cry out to the advocate, the righteous, the propitiation for our sin. And we see this in verses 9 and chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, as John introduces us to the whole point the advocate. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says in chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is not writing so that we might stop sinning. He's not writing so that we would do better and be perfect. For as we see in Hebrews 10, 14, we have already been made perfect. Rather than pretending to be that which we are not, He calls us to run to the one who is there when we inevitably find that sin dwells in me. For if we are to say we do not sin, we're liars. So clearly this is not calling us to stop sinning as Christians. My brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you will struggle with sin until you meet him in person. So we are called not to pretend otherwise. We are called not to even believe otherwise, but rather to have central and focused in mind exactly who John seeks to point us to, God. And the advocate we have ever before him. Call not God a liar, rather understand his word that we may live in the truth. So, We are not those who sin and hide it in the dark. Rather, we are called to be those who walk in the light. Why? That we may experience the fellowship we're pretending to have. We're not those who sin and yet deny it. Rather, we confess. 
What does confess mean? It literally just means to say the same thing. It means that when I have fallen, I view and proclaim my sin as God has done. I do not get to define my lesser and greater sins as the Pharisee did. Rather, I speak of my sin as God does. Meaning that when I have angered my heart towards someone, I do not get to say it's no big deal because they were annoying. It means that I must look at my sin, the anger in my heart, and I claim I have murdered you, image bearer. Because that is exactly what God says of my anger in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. I say of sin that which God has already said to be true, meaning I judge it according to what God says about my sin. It is ever in my sight, and I am overwhelmed by my desperate need for forgiveness. Here John gives us the test to know if we have genuine faith. And along with it, he gives us a beautiful hug. That those who are overwhelmed and overburdened by their sin might take rest. Instead of deny and lie. That they might live in the truth. Why? Because of verse 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This means that not only is he faithful, meaning that he will do it again and again and again for the sole purpose of that he said he would, but he is even so in doing just, meaning that just as a good judge must come to a proper, good, and right verdict, so God says the only verdict that he shall give to the broken sinner hidden in Christ, confessing their brokenness as he has claimed it, is forgiven. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has made it just that he can not condemn them. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has become the propitiation for our sin. What does John mean in verses 1 and 2 by saying Jesus has become our propitiation? The word propitiation means to satisfy. It means that all of the wrath that could have possibly been stored up from a perfect and righteous judge, all of the hate from a holy and perfect eternal God toward the sin that has filled this world with death, suffering, and vile horror since Adam neglected his duty, Everything possible that God could have had against me, a worthless sinner, was satisfied on Christ. Like a sponge, he absorbed every drop of wrath that there is none more to be poured. He has become the satisfaction for the sins of those who are in Christ Jesus He is the only just judge. And he is just to say to a sinner coming before the Father, 
confessing of the brokenness within, he says, forgiven. And not just one time. We often view confession as something I did at one point in the past. No, the word confess here is translated, go on confessing. This is not a one-time reality. And that is why we have an advocate ever standing before the Father. He is Jesus, the righteous He is Jesus, the only one who can actually say that he has no sin. He's the only one who can walk in the light and still look like the perfect man he claims to be. He is the only one that can actually say, I have not sinned, and yet not be calling God a liar. Jesus is the righteous one, and he has become the satisfaction for sinners. But let me say so clearly... He has become the satisfaction for only sinners. He has become satisfaction for only those who claim that there is indeed the need for a Savior. Those who would claim no sin in their heart have no forgiveness from God. They claim a lie. So there you have it. Those are our three individuals. We've been introduced to three people. And John has made his purpose clear. And yet, I got to be honest. I think I honestly often judge myself as the innocent righteous victim. And when you see it is in my fight with my wife. When you see it, is when I have to stop at a stoplight. You see it when someone else brings sin to me, and I want to set up my law of all that they've failed. You can see it in the way I treat others who get in my way. You can see it in the way I laugh scoff, joke, mock those that I deem as true sinners. And I am in desperate need of an advocate. For this is a rejection of the gospel itself. The gospel which assumes I am a heap of rotten sinner. Yet, with even this, there is great hope. Because our Father calls us not to lie about our sin. Not to deny our sin. But to live in crying out to the Advocate. To live in repentance. To live fleeing to the Father with our sin ever exposed. Running to the Advocate who is crying out on our behalf. These are some questions that I wrote down at the beginning of the week to begin pondering. And they have been very helpful in exposing areas that I am indeed in desperate need of help. The help that is promised 
for those who confess their sins. Let me ask you some questions, and possibly they'll be helpful as you go on your way. What do I do when I find sin in my life? Where do I go with it? Or do I? Do I live continually in confession and repentance for my sin? If not, what am I doing with my sin? Have I grown comfortable with my sin? Am I content remaining in it? In a disagreement, am I quick to seek to find out how I have been wronged? Or do am I quick to figure out how I may have sinned against others? If I was to ask my family whether or not they are at liberty to call me to account for my sin, would they have the hesitation? Would they be able to say that I am irrebukable? Were my sin to be unfolded here before Rocky Point Church, would anyone be shocked? Or would they see the same person they already know me to be? Does God's forgiveness of my sin seem shocking? Am I in the word frequently? And when I am, does it continually expose to me my desperate need for God's grace? Do I see my sin with the seriousness that God does? Or do I lessen, excuse, and blame shift it? Do I look upon those living in heinous sin with judgment and scoff? Or with pity as they are just like me? When someone sins against me, am I quick to offend? Or am I concerned for their good? as they are just one like me. These questions have revealed much over my past week, and I have been able to experience the beauty and grace of entrusting a broken soul to the just judge who has made it only just to forgive those in Christ Jesus. With these questions, I offer very good news. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the advocate to God the Father for only sinners. May we see ourselves the way God does, that we may see God the way he truly is, that we may run continually to him. Let us pray. Father God, you are good. All your ways are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who love you and keep your testimonies. Lord, we know not the depth of our sin, for even in this life we will but see mere shadows. And yet, Lord, you pour out forgiveness to those broken in sin. Lord God, may you comfort those who are here today 
who are overwhelmed with their sin. May you comfort those, Lord, who are seeking to follow you with their whole hearts and being exposed that the depth of your grace is never fully understood. Lord, may you comfort those who are afflicted by their own hearts that you may draw them sin exposed and in hand to you. And Lord, may you make very uncomfortable those of us who would see differently. Would you make very uncomfortable my heart, Lord, when I know my sin, but I care far more about my glory. Lord, would you make very uncomfortable my heart when I do not even perceive my sin, but instead see myself as righteous, not in you, but in me. Lord God, may you bring about the beauty of repentance in the life of Rocky Point. Lord, may people freely offer up the reality of who they are, that we as brothers and sisters may continually point one another towards the freedom found in Christ Jesus. Lord, that we might have fellowship, true fellowship with one another and with you. And Lord, may you allow us to be in awe of the righteous who has become for us the propitiation for our sins and not just for us, but the whole world. Lord, may you grant us by the work of your spirit in our hearts relief and freedom and forgiveness. In Jesus' name.